For an interactive version of this episode, subscribe to Criminal AF, available wherever you listen to podcasts, or visit www.criminalafpod.com. Charlie was furious. The crew he sent out the night before was supposed to be his best, but they fucked it all up. They were sloppy, chaotic, and there was no way anyone would believe that an organized group like the Black Panthers would be the ones to pull this fiasco off. His plan of creating a race war where he and his followers would come out as leaders of the New World had to go off without a hitch. He told his people that they would need to go out again tonight, and this time, he would be there to ensure it would go according to plan. He remembered the house of an associate to the family, Harold True located at 3267 Waverly Drive in the Los Feliz Hills section of Los Angeles. Charlie and his crew piled into the car and head out. There were a couple of occasions along the way where Charlie had thought of different targets. First, there was a priest standing outside of a church. Then there was the man who pulled alongside of them as they were driving. But Charlie decided to stick with the original plan. They pulled onto Waverly Drive and stopped outside of the house, which was located up a long driveway. Charlie and his right-hand man, Tex Watson, who spearheaded the murders the night before, exited the vehicle, walked up to the house, and broke in. They quickly subdued the two occupants of the home, leaving the woman in the bedroom and moved the man to the living room. They promised that they were in no danger. They simply wanted to rob the police. Charlie then exited the house and walked back to the car where he instructed followers Patricia Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Houten to join Tex inside the house and murder the occupants. There was one slight wrinkle in the plan, however. The house where they were at was not that of Harold True. It was the house next door, 3301 Waverly Drive, the home of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. This is one theory of many that have added to the lore of the Manson family. But according to the prosecutor who tried the case, it's the official version. When talking about the Manson family, there are several twists and turns. Numerous characters who are in and out of a timeline that only span two years, yet you could write full stories on each of these subplots. With this episode, we will start with Charles Manson, his early life, and the people that came to form the family followed by the prosecutor's theory of Helter Skelter, the Tate murders, and the LaBianca murders. We will end the Manson episodes with alternate theories that have gained traction over the years, such as the drug burn theory, the copycat theory, and the Revelations Chapter 9 theory. Manson was born, no name Maddox, on November 12, 1934, in Cincinnati, Ohio, to a promiscuous, alcoholic, 16-year-old runaway named Kathleen Maddox, as his mother didn't bother to give him an actual name. After a few weeks, Kathleen's mother named him Charles Mills Maddox. Charles's father was a man that went by the name of Colonel Walker Scott, and he lived in Kathleen's hometown in Ashland, Kentucky. Manson would state that he never knew his father, but this has been disputed. 
Prior to his birth, his mother married a transient and soon changed Charles' last name to suit that of his stepfather. By the time Charles Manson turned one, William and Kathleen split, and she brought Manson back to Kentucky. The first years of Manson's life were filled with neglect by his mother. She was set to work as a prostitute, performing her duties with Charles in the same room. One night, when Manson was about three or four years old, Kathleen brought him to a local pub. The waitress made a comment on how she would love to have a little boy. Manson's mother told the waitress, he's yours for a pitcher of beer. The waitress brought Kathleen the pitcher. She guzzled it down with Manson in her lap, got up and left, with young Manson still sitting in the booth. A relative spent the next few days trying to track down Charles to bring him back to his mother. At the age of five, his mother was sentenced to five years in prison for armed robbery, and Manson was shipped off to live with his grandparents and then his aunt and uncle in West Virginia. Charles would act out, be punished excessively. When Charles was eight, Kathleen returned to collect her son, but the neglect and abuse persisted. By age 10, Charles was sent to his first boys' school because his mother was deemed unfit due to her excessive drinking. He would escape these schools numerous times and ultimately find himself in a reformatory by the age of 13 after being caught robbing a grocery store. He did make an attempt at a normal life, getting married at the age of 20 to 15-year-old Rosalie Willis in January of 1955. Later that year, They moved from Ohio to Los Angeles in a stolen car, which Manson was eventually arrested for and received five years probation. Rosalie became pregnant and gave birth to Charles Manson Jr. while Manson was in prison for a parole violation. She would visit often during the first year of his sentence, but the visits eventually stopped as Rosalie met another man and divorced Manson in 1958. Rosalie would go on to change the name of Manson's son to Jay White after her new husband. Jay would die in 1993 from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Manson would marry again upon his release to a prostitute named Leona Stevens, and Charles would become her pimp. He was arrested again in 1960 for sex trafficking when he drove Leona and another woman into Mexico with the intention of pimping out the women. Leona would claim that she had a son by Manson, but there was no evidence to prove this beyond her claims. The rest of the decade, Manson was in and out of prisons. His crimes were mainly nonviolent, with the exception of sodomizing a boy as he held a knife to his throat. Throughout Manson's prison stays, he was continuously monitored by psychiatrists. In 1951, he was characterized as an extremely sensitive boy who has yet not given up in terms of securing love and affection from the world. In 1952, he was deemed dangerous with homosexual and assaultive tendencies. In 1955, he was said to have an unstable personality but has the potential to straighten himself out. In 1956, his psychiatrist noted that Manson was unable to control himself and has a tendency to cut. Manson's behavior was erratic and moody, and he was a classic textbook case of a correction institute inmate, 
as noted in 1958. In 1961, he was labeled as an energetic person who hides his loneliness, resentment, and hostility behind a facade of superficial ingratiation. In 1963, Manson was said to be emotionally insecure and tended to involve himself in various fanatical interests. And finally, in 1966, the psychiatrist wrote that Manson was in a need of a great deal of help in the transition from institution to the free world. After serving his term for forging a stolen treasury check worth less than $40, Charles Manson was scheduled for release from prison on March 21, 1967. He begged prison officials to keep him locked up because prison was his home. Unable to do so, he was released. Manson, along with the guitar he had learned to play in the penitentiary, made his way to the Haight-Ashbury section of San Francisco, the epicenter of the hippie movement in the Summer of Love. It was here, just a short time after his release, the family was created. three-year-old library assistant at the University of California, Berkeley, was born December 17, 1943, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and experienced a typical Midwestern upbringing. She attended the University of Wisconsin and received a bachelor's degree in history. She was walking her dog when she met Charles Manson. Manson befriended Mary and convinced her to allow him to move into her apartment, and soon after, they became lovers. 18-year-old Lynette Fromm was born in Santa Monica, California. Her family moved to Redondo Beach when Lynette was in high school and soon began experimenting with drugs. After falling out with her parents, Lynette ran away and found herself in Venice Beach, homeless and in a depressive state. Soon, she met Charles Manson strumming a guitar near the beach with Mary Brunner, and they began talking. She was entranced by this man's attitude and philosophies, and the three quickly became friends, moving in together in Mary's rented house at 636 Cole Street in San Francisco. By December of 1967, the family grew to seven with the addition of Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Ella Jo Bailey, and a 14-year-old girl named Ruth Ann Morehouse. Susan Atkins known as the scariest of the Manson girls, was born May 7, 1948, in San Gabriel, California. She was extremely shy throughout her childhood, and as a young teenager, her mother became sick and passed from cancer. Susan's father, unable to cope with the loss of his wife, turned to alcohol and abandoned Susan and her younger brother. The two moved in with relatives, and Susan worked as a waitress while attending high school to help care for her brother. She dropped out of high school in her junior year and moved on her own to San Francisco and took a job, at first, as a telemarketer and then working at a coffee shop. She served three months in prison in Oregon for a series of armed robberies with two escaped convicts she met at the coffee shop. Upon her release, she returned to San Francisco and worked as a topless dancer. It was spring of 1967 when she met Charles Manson and joined his commune. 
Ella Jo Bailey, who was Susan Atkins' roommate at the time of their meeting, was born in Omaha, Nebraska on January 15, 1947. There is very little known about Ella Jo's upbringing, but a picture of her was found in a Michigan high school yearbook from 1965, showing that she moved there at some point in her life. She moved to the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood shortly after graduating high school. Both she and Atkins were fascinated with Manson. Brenwinkle was born December 3rd, 1947, in Los Angeles. Her childhood was less than ideal. She was overweight and teased often. She eventually became addicted to diet pills and lost the weight, but she still felt ugly and unwanted. She sacrificed her virginity to a boy in her school so she could feel loved, but the boy never spoke to her again. After high school, she attended a Christian college in Alabama, but moved back to California after one semester. She moved to Manhattan Beach and took a job as a secretary and shared an apartment with her drug-addicted sister. One day after work, around September of 1967, she came home to find the apartment filled with people she did not know. Among them was Charles Manson. Manson seduced her into bed that night and showered her with compliments, telling her how beautiful she was. The self-loathing Krenwinkel was hooked on how Manson made her feel. Mary Brunner quit her job as a librarian assistant and soon the family of seven were traveling along the California coast into Oregon, Washington State, and Nevada collecting followers along the way. Nineteen sixty-eight brought an influx of new members to the family, and by the end of the year, their commune grew to fifty. Notable family members that joined during this time were Charles Tex Watson, Leslie Van Houten, Bobby Beausoleil, and Linda Kasabian. Charles Watson has been said to have been Manson's right-hand man because he was the one who led the Tate and LaBianca murders. Others give that designation to Bruce Davis we will speak of later in the story. Charles Watson, later known as Tex, was born on December 2nd, 1945, in Dallas, Texas. People in his hometown described him as the boy next door. He was an A student and a star athlete in high school, setting a state record in low hurdles. After high school, Tex attended college but dropped out in 1966 and moved to California. A chance meeting with a rock star lead him to Charles Manson. Linda Kasabian was born Linda Druin on June 21, 1949. She grew up in a small town in New Hampshire where her parents struggled financially and argued often. When she was a young child, her parents divorced and her father left town. She was described as a good student and intelligent in her high school years, but due to an unhealthy relationship with her stepfather, she quit school at the age of 16 and traveled out west to find God. During her pilgrimage, she married, divorced, and made a stop in Florida to reconcile with her father. When that fell apart, she moved to Boston, Massachusetts, where she remarried Robert Kasabian and had a daughter. Things began to sour between her and Robert, so Linda and her daughter moved back to New Hampshire to live with her mother. Robert contacted her a short time later 
and asked if she would move to the West Coast. Hoping to reconcile, she did, and she met Robert in Topanga Canyon. Robert wanted her to go on an expedition throughout South America with him, but because she had a young child, she declined. With Robert gone, Linda was left alone. She made friends with a woman named Catherine Cher, who told her about a group of hippies who were creating a paradise to escape the social turmoil of the day. Linda was intrigued and decided to visit this paradise and the man responsible for it, Charles Manson. The family took advantage of the open door policy practiced throughout the hippie movement in California, bouncing from location to location, spreading out amongst different settlements and meeting up again when it fit their needs. Some of these locations included the Yellow Submarine, a house on Gresham Street in Canoga Park, an apartment on Clubhouse Avenue in Venice, a spiral staircase, an abandoned house in Topanga Canyon that served as a heroin den, where Linda Kasabian joined the family, and Barker Ranch in Death Valley, owned by a family member's grandmother. With Mary now pregnant with Manson's child, the family made their way to a spiral staircase to settle in for the time being. Described as having slid off its foundation, the spiral staircase house allegedly had a creek flowing through the first level of the home It was plagued by an overabundance of rattlesnakes. On April 15, 1968, it was here Mary Brunner gave birth to her and Manson's child, a boy named Valentine Michael Manson. Mary was assisted in her delivery by the other women in the family. If there was one thing that Manson was determined to do, it was to become a musician. He and his followers would bounce from place to place trying to catch a break into the music industry. It was late spring of 1968 where Manson thought his dreams would finally come true. Dennis Wilson, the drummer and founding member of the Beach Boys, was traveling through Malibu when he saw two female hitchhikers, Patricia Krenwinkle and Ella Jo Bailey. He picked them up and drove them to their destination. About a month later, he saw Patricia and Ella Joe hitchhiking again. But this time, Wilson brought the two women to his house at 14400 Sunset Boulevard, where they partied together. And Wilson spoke of his following of the Maharishi, and the women spoke of their own spiritual guru, a man they called Charlie. Wilson let the two women stay at his house when he left to go to a recording session. When he returned at 3 a.m., he was met in his driveway by a man who introduced himself as Charles Manson. They walked inside Wilson's home, which was now occupied by about a dozen members of the family, mostly women. Over the course of the night, Manson played and sang songs, and Wilson was mesmerized by him. The family occupied Wilson's home for the next several weeks. This was where Tex Watson was introduced to the family as well. Earlier in the year, Tex had picked up Wilson hitchhiking. The two quickly bonded and became friendly. Tex stayed at Wilson's mansion from time to time, and it was during this period Tex had met Manson, and like Wilson, had become entangled in his web of drugs and women. Dennis Wilson footed the bill for the family during their stay, totaling over $100,000, for things like cash, dental work, and other medical bills, cars, clothes, food, penicillin shots for the constant cases of gonorrhea. 
It was here that Manson played a song he wrote called Cease to Exist, and Wilson was impressed. Over the next several weeks, Wilson would introduce Manson to a plethora of insiders to help jumpstart his career. Manson met singer Neil Young, called Manson an improvisational genius, and a talent scout named Greg Jacobson, who wanted to feature Manson, his music, and his family in a documentary. But there were others who met Manson and could see through the bullshit. Fellow Beach Boy Mike Love thought Manson was creepy, and Terry Melker, a producer for Columbia Records and son of the actress Doris Day, was wary of Manson and eventually refused to record him and canceled a meeting scheduled at Melker's home, located at 10050 Cielo Drive. Still, Wilson went out of his way to pull strings in order to give Manson a chance at a record deal. Wilson set up a recording session with the Beach Boys label, Brother Records. Manson recorded several tracks, but the session ended badly when Manson allegedly pulled a knife on the studio engineer in a fit of frustration. As the weeks pushed on into the summer of 68, Wilson himself began to grow tired of Manson and the family. He repeatedly asked them to leave his home, and when they refused, Wilson walked away, leaving the house, all of its possessions, and the family behind. This act would lead to several run-ins between the two, in which Manson would threaten the lives of Wilson's children. To add insult to injury in their exceedingly souring relationship, Manson's song ceased to exist, which was at one time promised to be on the next Beach Boys album, with a writing credit given to Manson, was added as a B-side to their album 2020, but the name of the song was changed to Never Learn Not to Love. Wilson also changed some of the composition, and Manson was never given credit. Manson, now living on an old movie set called Spawn Ranch with the family, began to spiral into paranoia. Spawn Ranch, owned by a blind elderly man named George Spawn, was once a movie set used for western-themed movies and television shows such as Bonanza, The Lone Ranger, and Zorro, as well as a low-budget softcore porn titled Ram Rider, in which current family member Catherine Scher and future family member Bobby Beausoleil co-starred. George had been a successful milk farmer from Pennsylvania when he, his wife, and their 11 children packed up and moved to California leaving the business behind. He purchased the ranch in 1953, and his livestock business thrived. He added children's pony rides, horses for trail riding, and rented out areas of the 55-acre ranch for traveling carnivals. George met a young, spirited carnival worker named Ruby Pearl, who stayed with him to care for the horses and upkeep, and soon became his lover. His wife... Growing tired of the ranch and George's infidelity, took their 11 children and moved back to Pennsylvania, though they never divorced. When George passed in 1974, he and his wife were still married. By the time the family moved on to Spawn Ranch in 1968, it was a shadow of its old self, falling into disrepair and was solely used as a place visitors could rent horses to ride through the trails. 
It became known as a place where the downtrodden and homeless could live in exchange for upkeep of the property, though not much upkeep was being done. Manson and George came to an agreement that for him and the family to live there, they would care for the property and for the aging George Spahn himself. Manson divvied up the responsibilities of cooking and cleaning to the women of the family, and the men would maintain the more laborious tasks, such as building repairs and caring for the horses, along with Ruby Pearl, who had since had a falling out with George, that stayed at the ranch. Lynette Fromm was given the task of caring for George, essentially becoming a de facto wife, responsible for cleaning Spawn's residence, cooking for him, and having sex with him although other members were also tasked with giving him sexual favors to keep George happy. It was George Spahn who gave Lynette her nickname of Squeaky, for the sound she made when Spahn ran his fingers up her thigh. The location of Spahn Ranch was perfect for Manson, who used its isolation from the real world for total mind control. According to Manson prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi, There were no newspapers, no clocks, and the family was cut off from the rest of society. Manson created in this timeless land a tight little community of his own, with its own value system. It was holistic, complete, and totally at odds with the world outside. Spawn Ranch became Manson's kingdom, where he controlled his people with acid trips, orgies, and hypnotic lectures of what a perfect society would be like, but only if they followed him and his word. The family would go on excursions, or creepy crawlies, as they called them, where they would go to area towns and steal from houses, cars, and whatever else they could get their hands on. Sometimes they would just break into people's homes and move things around to frighten the owners. To the common person, this would seem like a bunch of hooligans creating trouble, but it goes deeper than that. Manson wasn't common, and these creepy crawlies were a way to train his family as his paranoia began to settle in. Manson, still angered by his fallout with Dennis Wilson and the music industry, had a plan in mind, and it came from the Beatles' White Album within the song Helter Skelter. Manson dreamed of being a rock star with notoriety, money, fame, and women, but this was all crumbling before him. He instead piggybacked onto the Beatles' fame, using their music and words to inspire his people. During their nightly gatherings, which Manson would preach to his followers, he began playing and singing Beatles' music and essentially interpreting their lyrics into his own gospel. Over time, he would persuade his acid-tripped commune that only he could translate the subliminal messaging within the songs, and if they were to follow his word, they would rise as leaders of a new world. Helter Skelter would be an uprising in which they would create a race war. Manson, a white supremacist, hated black people and viewed the race as violent savages. He believed that black people would be victorious in the race war because of their savagery, but they would be unfit to lead themselves after. So he and his family would hide at their Death Valley Sanctuary at Barker Ranch where they would morph into winged elves and other fantastic creatures and arise after the race war to claim their supremacy over the blacks. In order for this to happen, a series of events needed to conspire. Murders of rich white women to be framed as being committed by black men 
On August 8th, 1968, it was time. He pulled Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel aside and instructed the women to do as Tex tells them. Then he said to Tex, Leave a sign. Something witchy. This episode of Criminal AF Direct was written and produced by me, Dave Jari. For an unfiltered, interactive version of this episode, with myself and co-host Garrett Corder, subscribe to Criminal AF or follow the link in the episode description. Follow at Criminal AF Pod on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, and YouTube. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>